There was no possible way that I could do all of these verses that we read. Um, therefore, today we are going to be looking at verses 14 to 16. That's going to be really our focus here today. Verses 14 to 16 and what I've entitled a death blow to the devil. A death blow to the devil because that is exactly what Jesus has done by coming and by becoming lower than the angels as the book of Hebrews has repeatedly said Jesus lowered himself and sometimes we might get the false idea that by lowering himself somehow he became weak or he became inferior or somehow he was in a weakened state but he was not as a matter of fact in that very moment where people thought that Jesus was at his lowest point, he was actually dealing the devil and the forces of darkness a deadly blow on the cross. And that's exactly what he has done. At the cross, Jesus defeated and defanged the devil so that he took one of Satan's most powerful weapons away from him, namely death, death. The defeat of Satan is a theme that goes all the way back to the opening pages of Scripture. Isn't it amazing? All the way from the beginning of the pages of Scripture, this victory that we're looking at here in the book of Hebrews was already prophesied. It was already promised in what theologians call the Proto-Evangelion. That is the first gospel promise found in the book of Genesis. I'll read it for you because this is talking about our Savior and what he would do. It says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so what transpires after that in all of the pages of scripture is what we can call seed theology. That is to say, this seed is then anticipated in chapter four of Genesis by Eve, she conceives and gives birth to another child and says, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. No question, anticipating and believing in the promise and thinking that with the birth of Cain would come uh, the promise or the fulfillment of the promise, but that was not to be. This promise is later advanced through Seth. And Seth ultimately gave way to Abraham and Abraham, and in Abraham, we begin to see the covenantal structure of this promise, that this promise would affect all of the descendants of Abraham, that through Abraham, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. This promise is really what carries the, the, the prophecy of the seed until its intended goal, so that the promise is administrated in the covenant that God made with Moses and with the children of Israel, and then it is also perpetuated with the covenant that he gave to David. But ultimately, all of these things, as you know, are realized in Jesus Christ, who is both David's son and David's Lord. But what Hebrews and the gospel make very clear is that the triumph of the seed over the serpent was to be accomplished through suffering and through death. And that is exactly what this text is saying, that it was through death that he rendered the serpent powerless. 
The lowering of Jesus means the exaltation of his people. By his humility, he elevates us to heights that are unknown. By virtue of his death, he renders his people indestructible, immortal, and victorious over death itself. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Jesus always leads us in triumph. We triumph through him. And this, this passage here looks at death right in the face, stares death in the face, and so that we see three glorious results that come from this. Now, the effects of all of this begin with man's solidarity to Jesus, our solidarity with Jesus. Look at the text again there in verse 14. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, meaning all of us are flesh and blood, it says he himself, that is Christ, also partook of the same. That is to say that Jesus entered into humanity. He became a man. So this is a reference to his incarnation. He became one of us. He became one of his brethren. He came among his children. And the children here are the same that are mentioned in verse 13. That is, those whom the Father has given to the Son. But we'll get to that a little bit later on. They are Jesus' brethren. These are described as Jesus' brethren, his brothers and sisters, that is, who are adopted into the family of God and have had a new identity given to them, an identity of holiness and righteousness. Now, let's stop and pause there for a second because it says that the children are sanctified. It says that back in verse 11, he who sanctifies, and who does he sanctify? He sanctifies his children so that you know whether or not you are a child of God if you are sanctified. Now, this runs directly against the grain of so many people today who would say that everybody is a child of God. Everybody is a child of God. This is not what the Bible teaches in any way whatsoever. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, there is a clear distinction given to us. And this is what it says. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone that does not practice righteousness is not of God, neither the one that does not love his brother. So in other words, it is a matter of holiness. Ministering at a college campus as we do week in and week out, we have the unique advantage of talking to people about what they believe on a regular basis. You know, sometimes you could try evangelizing your family, evangelizing your neighbors, evangelizing your friends, and sometimes it could take weeks, if not months, to really get into a, a, a religious conversation with them. But you go on a college campus and these college students are almost eager to tell you what they believe about stuff. And it's not very long before we hear, and I tell you what, in reality, if I had a nickel for every time I heard one of these college students tell me, we are all children of God. Everyone is a child of God. And then shortly after that, certainly, oftentimes, comes blasphemies, profanities, all sorts of wickedness, which show that they are not children of God at all. What's going on here? What's going on here is exactly what the Bible says. The children of God and the children of the devil are being made manifest 
through whether or not they love righteousness. They love righteousness. But we are those who have had our identity changed. And when a person goes from darkness to light, and when a person is truly united to Christ, and when a person is truly in solidarity with Christ, that means that you have had your whole identity altered. Everything about you should change. That doesn't mean that you are sinless. That doesn't mean that you'll never fail. That doesn't mean that you'll never sin. That just simply means that you have a new orientation in life. You have new goals, you have new ambitions, you have a new passion, you have a new reason for living. You have a new reason for living. I mean, I remember the day that I was converted to Christ. I remember thinking to myself, I finally know why I'm here. I finally know why I exist. I finally know the meaning of life. I know what purpose I have now. Prior to that, I had no purpose. Everything was found in a temporal pleasure or a temporal pursuit one of some kind or the other. But when a person has had their identity changed, when they are truly in union with Christ, everything changes. Our whole character is to change. We are transformed, the Bible says, from one degree of glory to the next until we are being transformed into the very image of God. That's what's going on. Being united to Christ means everything changes. Very quickly, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, because I thought we need to talk more about this, because we live, obviously, in a culture where, especially in the Bible Belt, where everybody claims to be a Christian, and yet what is the difference? Do we have a claim? Do we have a gripe? Are we able to say, wait a minute, wait a second, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I can count you as a brother or a sister. And I would say, yes, you do. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We are called to be children of light because we have been put into the light. And when we walk in darkness, we live in contradiction to ourselves. That is the truth. That is the absolute truth. Instead, you need to just look at people's lives and ask, has there been a change? Has there been a transformation? What evidence of grace do you see in people's life? Because the reality is, if there has been no transformation, there has been no regeneration. That's the truth. Now, let's look at some of the effects here that God has accomplished on behalf of his sanctified people on the cross, because that's really what's in view. The very first thing is the defanging of the devil, the defanging of the devil. And there, I'm referring back to verse 14, where it says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that, and here's the first reason why, that through death, that is his death, the death of Christ, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. What an amazing and often perplexing passage of Scripture. It has caused very many people great angst. There's all sorts of exegetical issues. And here's my exegetical conclusions. (laughs) Uh, Be ready for these, right? But this is what I think is going on here first. Satan has been beat. That is the first 
and non-negotiable issue is that we're looking at a victory that has been won over Satan. And it is not, and it, but it is not, obviously, it is not a total vanquishing. It is not a complete eradication. It is not a wiping out of existence because Satan obviously exists. So Satan has been beat in relationship with the believer in terms of dominion, in terms of mastery, as it says here. And this assumes that you think contrary to many people, by the way, today. You know, your neighbors don't think like this. Many of your neighbors don't believe in the devil. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in Satan. They don't believe in the gospel. They don't believe in the biblical worldview. And to many people, when you start talking about the devil, they immediately begin checking out as if you're talking about some make-believe mythological world. But for us, Satan is real. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 makes him real. We have a real adversary, 1 Peter 5, 8. He is a real, a real adversary going around like a lion. He is not a lion, but he goes around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And if we yield ourselves over to him, if we place ourselves in the way for him to devour us, he would devour us. I just recently saw this clip, a, a safari. They were filming all these lions gathered around this small little creature, and they did not harm that creature. You know why? Because he was a porcupine. <laughs> it don't matter how many lions are out there. That porcupine is not going to lose. <laughs> and uh, he beat them. He beat all the, I think it was 15 lions out in the, well, but, the, but the people were filming from inside the car, and they were terrified because they were swarmed by lions. I tell you what, you get out of that car and you are lunch, baby. The same thing with us. If we put ourselves in the path of danger, we are certain to be devoured. Is Satan real? Absolutely. Absolutely Satan is real. And we see him wreaking havoc everywhere. But the glorious thing for us and what Hebrews is talking about here is that by Jesus becoming a man, he came and he gave the devil a death blow. He landed a, a game-changing uh, wound on Satan. And he did this on behalf of his people, which goes back, if you would, uh, to verse 9. Look at verse 9. Again, so, sort of the similar thing perfect, harmonious theology here, because verse 9 is speaking essentially about the same thing that verse 14 is talking about. It says, but we see him who was made lower than the angels, for a little while lower than the angels. That's the same thing as saying he partook of the same in verse 14. He took on flesh and blood. That's the same thing, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, he was crowned, there's his victory, with glory and honor so that he, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for everyone. So he won something for us. He stood in our place. He was our victor, our captain. That's why script, the, the, the book of Hebrews is going to go on to say that he is, our, he is our trailblazer. He is the author, finisher of our faith. He is our warrior. He is our warrior. And it says he did this in order to taste death. He needed a body in order to taste. He partook of the same, the same humanity that we possess. He possessed, as it'll go on to say, yet without sin. But the very purpose of the incarnation, 
was for the purpose of engaging in spiritual warfare for the Son of God. The incarnation was Jesus putting on his battle armor to wage war against the devil and the principalities and powers, and he did this and he won. How did he defeat him, however? How did he defang him? Look at the text. By rendering him powerless, that word there, katargeo, has many meanings, and as a matter of fact, with this word powerless, we see the semantic range of much of the, of the, of the vocabulary of the New Testament because it could have different connotations to it. Katargeo can mean to cease to exist. Well, obviously, this text is not saying that on the cross, Jesus caused the devil to cease to exist. That is not what it's saying. It also means that he, that it also can mean that he can be put aside. It can be put aside. But it also speaks of making something ineffective. Ineffective, and that is exactly, I think, the text, what the text is saying here. That in being rendered powerless, he has become immobilized. He's been rendered ineffective. He no longer has the abilities that he once had over us. Over us. Now, without question, the, the, the devil is everywhere today uh, working his influence. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the devil has influence over the whole world. What an amazing text. Matter of fact, it, it paints a picture because the language there is literally that the whole world lays in the lap of the devil. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And he's just influencing and infiltrating and working in it. But we who are being saved, we are being protected by the power of God so that the power that he once had, he no longer has. A similar verse, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 26. When you're talking about Satan, the devil, you're walking a fine line because you never want to give the devil too much power, but you don't want to inter underestimate the devil either. So we need to have a proper understanding of the extent of his power, the scope of his influence. Listen to what it says here in 2 Timothy 2.24. It says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses... What a beautiful picture of repentance, by the way. It says that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. What an amazing verse. What a picture that paints in our minds. Those that are outside of Christ are Satan's puppets. He pulls their strings. They do his bidding. They are under his influence. And one of the aspects of the influences of Satan is that people don't think they're under his influence. That is a great trick of the devil is to make people think that they are not enslaved to the devil. That's how he works. Although the devil's intensity has been removed, defanged, rendered powerless with respect to death, his influence has not at all been eradicated, as I mentioned already. The reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. 
and ultimately to abolish death itself. This is a glorious promise because in defeating the devil, he defeats death as well. Let me give you some verses on this. Luke chapter 11, verse 21 and 22, when he goes to, to, to plunder the goods of the strong man, he first has to bind the strong man. And so he bound the devil at the cross. That is, he, 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 he uh, accomplished a certain victory over him, enabling him to take those that used to belong to him. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, but now... But now he has been revealed by the now it's been revealed by the appearing of our of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Isn't that amazing? What does the gospel do? It shows us how to achieve immortality. What does the gospel do? It abolishes death. You want, I often ask people, do you have an answer for death? and everything that you're doing in life and everything that you're involved in? Do you have an answer for death? Do you realize that one day everything that you hold dear to yourself, your friends, your family, your money, your possessions, everything will be violently ripped away from you at death. Death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. And Jesus plundered the devil's goods. He took those that were enslaved to him he plundered them by taking away Satan's ability to scare people with death. Now, this is an interesting thing. In the first century, in the, Gre in the Greco-Roman world, death and the fear of death was viewed as bondage. Uh, the Greco-Roman world taught that the way to overcome the fear of death was to view death as a release from the sufferings of the present life. And that is not what it is for us. So I, I, I had to actually check myself on this very issue because often I think I hear myself saying those types of things and there is a truth in that. But for us, it is not only that death is the end of suffering, it is that death is the, is the path to paradise, <laughs> is that death is the gateway, the portal to eternal life. Ultimately, death is gain, not because the suffering stops, but because the pleasure begins. That's why death is gain. It's not because cancer is over. It's not because diseases are over. It's not because sin is over. Death is gain primarily because you gain Christ. You gain him with whom you are now in present fellowship with. You gain him. Your faith will be turned to sight. And that's why our view of death is far different from the view that people have in the culture, in the world. It is only through the cross of Jesus Christ that we can, see, that we can say with Paul that we have defeated death, that death no longer has a victory, that death's sting has been removed, that the power of death has been removed. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8. Because again, this helps us to see that death no longer has a sting and no longer possesses a threat for the believer. We need to live like this. I know it's hard on a practical level, psychologically at times, if we're honest with ourselves, we still have elements of that where we do fear death, where, where death is still scary to us in, certain, in a certain way. But it is not true. It is not true. Christianity is all about living consistently with who you really are, with who you really are. 
Who are you in Christ? You are more than a conqueror. Who are you in Christ? You are someone who, for whom death and the sting of death and the terror of death has been removed. That's who you are. That is not often how you feel, <laughs> but that is who you are nevertheless. That's how Paul wanted us to see our whole Christian life. Look at Romans 8.36. It says, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. Now, if you have an NIV, it completely destroys the Greek there because the NIV says something like, we face death. And that is not what the Greek text says. It says we are killed. Literally, we are killed all day long. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about martyrdom. And he says we were we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, then he goes on, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's it. Death is equal to life in terms of the fact that the threat that death poses has been removed just as much as the threat of this life poses. Are there threats in this life? Are there dangers in this life? Is there hazardous things in this life that can threaten to overtake you? Absolutely. It's called a dysfunctional family. It's called a bad marriage. It's called a bad day at work. It's called a car accident. It's called a disease. It's called a phone call from the doctor. There are terrors in this world. There's terrors in this life just as much as there is terror in death. But both, both, for the children of God has been rendered such that it cannot separate us from the love of God. We are inseparable, and that's why I think the author of Hebrews begins by firmly establishing all of this with our solidarity to Jesus Christ. That's why union with Christ is so crucial. That doctrine, union with Christ, is what makes all the difference in the world in our Christian life. That's why Paul could go on even further, even further than saying, not only will death not separate me from the love of God, but actually death becomes my servant. What a total reversal. You see this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse, uh, verse 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 31, a total reversal of events because what this is talking about is going from a place of slavery to the fear of death to now in Christ you have come into a new, realm, a new, a new phase of existence, if you would. You've come into a new way of living where death itself now becomes your slave. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Listen to what he says in verse 21. So then, let no one boast in men, 1 Corinthians 2.21, for all things belong to you. <laughs> this is how sufficient we are in Christ. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. Is that a glorious glorious verse you got to tap into that verse when you're down you need to tap into that verse when the devil's done a number on you 
You got to tap into that verse when you're depressed. You got to tap into that verse when you're lonely. You got to tap into that verse when you're confused. And remember, okay, who am I? Who am I in Christ? He shared in flesh and blood. He, he, he came to partake of the same. He came to identify with me. I'm in union with him. And as a result, all things belong to me. Isn't that glorious? This is what it means that we triumph. We overwhelmingly triumph. And Paul goes even further. I would be remiss if I didn't take you to Philippians chapter 1. Turn there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. To see the odd the odd worldview of a man that believed all of this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. The alien worldview that this man possessed, what made him to differ, what made him different from everybody else, what, what, what separated him from the, 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 from the natural man. He says in Philippians 1, 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. Can we honestly say that today about our own lives? Can we honestly say death is only a promotion? We can stare death in the face now and say, God, death no longer poses a throat. Not only that, death is now a bonus. It's not that we go around with a morbid view of life and talking about how much we want to die. <laughs> Don't do that. You might freak people out. But it is part of the Christian worldview that death no longer, as John MacArthur called it, the king of terrors. It is no longer the king of terror for you. And now it becomes a point of gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know what to choose. I am fully convinced that Paul here is being totally genuine. He is literally perplexed. He is truly in truth. He is not being facetious. He's not being hyper-spiritual. He's not being super, super Christian. I think he's telling us the truth. He was literally betwixt, to use the old King James. He was perplexed. He was, he was between a rock and a hard place. He's saying, look, for me, well, let's just let him explain himself. Verse 23, I am hard-pressed from both directions having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that would be very much better. And I like the NASB translation there because it brings out the adverbs very good here. It is very much better, very much better to depart and be with Christ, incomparably better. What are we talking about? We're talking about going on another day of life in this sinful world, this messed up place versus total consummate communion with Jesus Christ. What are we talking about? People say, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. I say no. When the devil reminds you of your past, remind yourself of your future. <laughs> Forget where the devil's going. Focus on where you're going because of what Christ did. I think of Paul the Apostle there. I preached the book of Hebrews, and I was, every time I came to a, a strong conclusion of the book of Hebrews, or every time, I, every time I came to an end of a thought or an end of a pericope or a chapter or a paragraph, I thought to myself, I reminded myself again and again, he wrote this while he was imprisoned. 
<laughs> he wrote this while he was in prison. You say, oh, that's why he's saying death is gain. <laughs> yeah, but the same man that said death is gain is the same one who goes on to say in chapter 4, I, chapter four, I learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. Isn't that glorious? This is not the ramblings of a belligerent suicidal man languishing away in a prison cell. It is the worldview of a man who understood that the highest form of existence was a personal encounter and communion with the risen Lord. That is who Paul is. This is not wishful thinking. It is not religious sentimentality. It is not the theology of the heathen that say, oh, he went to a better place. No, heaven is real. Hell is real. The devil is real. But more importantly, Jesus Christ is real. And what he did on the cross is a real, tangible victory over Satan. The next thing is this. He not only defanged the devil, but he also delivered the oppressed. He also delivered the oppressed. Look at verse 15. He says, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, verse 15, that he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now that is a verse that causes a lot of people uh, sort of confusion and wonder because it means that that they were once enslaved, right? We were all once enslaved to the fear of death, but no longer, no longer. Death no longer has a mysterious threat. It doesn't contain a mysterious danger to us anymore that cannot be resolved. Rather, through death, the death of Christ, one of our worst fears is over. This is what the cross results in, that he might free those. This is a liberation coming our way. Man in his natural state is a slave. He is a slave to his sin. He is a slave to his environment. He is a slave to culture. He is a slave to his passions. And he is a slave to fear. Here, the fear of death. And he is a slave to satanic fear, satanically yielded fear, the fear of death. And the fact of death prevails all their lives. Did you notice that? They were subject to slavery all their lives. Lifelong bondage to the tyranny of death. To the tyranny of death. Which Satan hangs over people's lives. They're bound. They're in bondage. They're in bondage without Christ. And without Christ, death only symbolizes separation. Without Christ, death only symbolizes the unknown, the end of life, the end of good times, the end of memories. It only symbolizes exposure, nakedness, estrangement. It only symbolizes terror, helplessness, judgment, and hopelessness. So that the absolute finality of death is just the nail on the coffin that drives all of those awful realities home to man. Scripture refers to death as an enemy. What does our culture say? Death is natural. How many people have you heard say that? Death is just part of life. Accept it. That is one of the most demonic heresies I've ever heard in my life. Because the Bible teaches the complete opposite. Death is totally opposite of what is natural, we could say. Death being the result of sin 
Genesis 2.17, Ezekiel 8.4, 1 Corinthians 15.56, death being the opposite of sin means that by virtue of its connection to sin, death is totally at odds with God. It's remarkable. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And yet, our culture loves death. Haven't you noticed that? Our culture flirts with death all the time. Our, cu- our culture loves to flirt with disaster. Our culture trivializes death as well, and that's one of the ways that it undermines the teaching of Scripture. Our culture loves to prey on people's fear of death through horror films. Through Halloween, we trivialize death. I did not know this, but did you know, according to uh, one study, that celebrating Halloween has now become second only to Christmas, and that Americans spend billions of dollars celebrating Halloween. I'm not here to judge you, but I'm here to tell you that we are in a culture that makes a lot of money on trivializing death. And that is exactly what Halloween is about. It's about death. And No Christian should give themselves to trivializing death in any way. I'm not saying that if you dressed up your daughter as a little princess that you're trivializing death. I'm saying recognize the culture that you're in. Be different. I think if we celebrate Halloween, what a shame. Not because you're in sin when you're out there getting candy, but because I think you missed a golden opportunity to be different from this world. Be different from the world. No, trivializing death is a principle that is totally incompatible with the biblical worldview. I've done enough funerals to know how sobering death is. I would rather preach a funeral any day than a wedding. And I've done probably about equal number of the two. And I love to preach funerals because eternity is razor sharp on people's minds. And I can use that opportunity to preach the gospel in ways that I just can't in other circumstances. But you know what? Buried beneath all of the superficial triviality of death lies a real fear of death. Thanatophobia. Have you heard of that term? That is an unnatural fear of death. But according to to this scripture, Satan uses death to strike fear in everyone. And You know what's amazing about that is that when Satan does this, it doesn't lead people to God, right? Because you would think in your mind, wait a minute, if Satan uses fear as a scare tactic, well, naturally, wouldn't they be afraid to die and want to seek eternal life? No, you know that from your own life, that even though you had the terror of death there behind the walls and the subconscious level, you knew it was there all along. You were afraid of it. I was but I'll tell you what, it didn't lead me to Christ. It led me to live a false life. It led me to be self-deceived. It led me to be inebriated by substances so that I can just numb the reality of it all and drive it out of my mind before it drove me insane. See, we deal with the fear of death here not in a godly way unless we're in Christ. God triumphs over death through death. To quote John Owen's famous book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, there's only one way to put death to death, and that's through another death, the death of Christ. And the death of Jesus is God's way of fulfilling the promise that he made long ago, 
I love the way the Old Testament asks a question that the New Testament can only answer. Hosea chapter 13, God asks of his people in verse 14, shall I ransom them from the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? And then he says, O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Have you heard that verse before? Yes, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul tells us how the sting of death is removed, how the fear of death is removed. It is removed through Jesus Christ that gives us the victory. Will God deliver us from death? Yes, through Jesus Christ. Job asked, if a man dies, will he live again? Yes, he will live again because Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will never die. So last aspect of what Jesus did, not only did he defang the devil, not only did he deliver the oppressed, but he also descends for the descendants of Abraham. Look with me at the text again. It says in verse 16, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Amazing, amazing verse. He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Now, who is the descendant of Abraham in this passage? I would suggest that it is synonymous with believers. It is synonymous. Let's trace this back. I am arguing that the seed of Abraham here, which all commentaries pretty much agree, is referring to the recipients of the help that Jesus gives through his death, I am saying is synonymous going all the way back to verse 9. Go back to verse 9. It is synonymous with the everyone for whom he tastes death. The, verse 10, the many sons that he brings to glory. Verse 11, those that he sanctifies. Verse 12, his brethren. Verse 12, his congregation. Verse 13, the children that are given to Christ by the Father. The connection that is made here is in verse 14 when it says, since the children share in flesh and blood. So that connects us to the previous thought, which I think verse 16 is also in league. It is the children of verse 13 that represent the descendant of Abraham so that it is not the physical descendant of Abraham. Boy, we would be in trouble today if this verse was only for physical descendants of Abraham. It would be such an infinitesimal group of people. But we know from Scripture all over the place that the seed of Abraham, the children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham are represented in Scripture all over the place as as referring to believers. So, for example, let me just show you a couple of these so that you don't think I'm crazy. Uh, beginning in Romans, Romans chapter 4, let's go there. Romans chapter 4, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says as much there as he's building the case for faith alone, justification by faith alone, using Abraham as an example of our justification. And he says in verse 16, for this reason, it is by faith in order that it might be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, those are the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So spiritually speaking, Abraham is the progenitor of his spiritual children. 
Abraham is the, 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 the forefather of all believers. Now turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, just to see this again. Galatians 3, verse 8. There the apostle Paul says again, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, jump up to verse, um, verse 7, because that was, I think that, that was more to the point. Therefore, be sure that, that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. See that? One more, one more. Philippians chapter 3. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. I struggled with this because some commentators, especially dispensational type commentators, try to restrict Hebrews chapter 2 here only to refer to Jews. So, for example, John MacArthur, he gave me one sentence in his Hebrews commentary, and I was like, come on, Johnny, give me more. <laughs> but he gave me one sentence where he made it very clear that for him, at least back then, I don't know about now, but at least back then, Hebrews 2.16 is, is speaking strictly about the Jews. But here in Philippians 3.3, 3, we are told that we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there, obviously, Paul writing to a Gentile church in Galatia, calling them the true circumcision, which is only a reference used for ethnic Jews, obviously says there's a spiritual component at work. And the spiritual component is that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. So the descendant of Abraham who receives help through the cross is the believer. That's what I'm arguing. So not only is Jesus shown here to give help by defeating the devil, but also by diffusing temptation through his intercessory work. That's what is really being talked about here when it talks about helping us. He gives help. He gives aid. Literally, it can mean that he takes hold of. Think of Jesus coming alongside of you and grabbing you by the hand so as to help you, to lead you, to guide you, to protect you, to pray for you, to intercede for you, and ultimately to die for you. That is the type of help that he gives. He helps us in our temptations so that we do not plunge our souls into eternal perdition. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 39, we are not of those that draw back to destruction. The only reason you are not of those that will draw back to destruction is because of this verse right here, because he gives you help. If he were to leave it to you, then trust me, you would make a mess of it in no time flat, right? If he were not to keep us, oh, then we would ruin it so quickly. Had somebody say once, oh, I was talking to somebody who said that they believe that you can lose your salvation. You could lose your salvation. And my response to that would be, well, then you are certainly damned. Because if it's left for you to preserve it, forget it, man. Because we can't do it on our own. All that we can do is mess up what God does. You know that in your own life. We take what God does and 
Left to us, we make a mess of things. But Jesus was incarnated in order to help us. Turn with me to chapter 4. Let's look at a few of these very, very precious truths. And then I want to leave you with two encouraging points. But Hebrews chapter 4, just to see this, and this is some of the most precious real estate in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Are you weak? Are you weak? Do you have weaknesses? We all do. I do. You do. We all do. And we have a high priest that knows that and not only knows that, but he sympathizes with us in that. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Here we go. So that we might receive mercy and that we might find grace in order to help in time of need. Jesus came to provide us that help. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. In verse 18 of chapter 2, I'm, I'm sorry to take you back and forth, but in Hebrews 2, verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to our aid. You see that? He's able to come to our aid. So what does this mean in the final analysis? I want to give you two things, and it's this that based on what Jesus has done, we should find courage and we should find comfort. We should believe that we have courage. And what, I, and, and, and what this means is that because our courage is rooted in the gospel, we can stand fearless in Christ. There should be a fearlessness about all of us, right? I like what... Uh, recently, uh, they talked to one of the missionaries that came back uh, from the Ebola-stricken areas in Africa, and, and she said, even after getting Ebola and even after being thankful, you know, thankfully she was cured, but this particular missionary said, risk is right. And I thought, that is so perfect. Now, this is a woman that understands that she has a fearlessness about her in Christ, that she has a courage that cannot be taken away, even in the face of something as terrible as Ebola or any other type of disease. It is only because Jesus takes away the threat of the enemy that we can have total victory, total confidence, total fearlessness and assurance. But not only that, it means that we don't have to fear the devil as we once did. Folks, let me tell you something. You don't need to live in paranoia that the devil is around every corner and that he's out to get you. So that if, you're, if things aren't going well in your house or whatever, you immediately fly to blame the devil instead of looking at your own character, the fruit of the Spirit. Well, I was late for work today. The devil was after me. Well, I don't give the devil that much power in my life. <laughs> he is not omniscient. And so we don't need to live in a state of spiritual paranoia, thinking that Satan is out to get us and that he can get us. He cannot. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18 says, The evil one cannot touch you. He cannot touch you. Finally, we should have great comfort in this. 
It is the supreme triumph of the exalted Son of God who comes to help us. That means we have to reflect back on chapter 1. All that language in chapter 1 about the enthronement of Christ, the Son of God, His throne, His scepter, His righteousness, the fact that He had laid the foundations of the earth. Look how sovereign He is. He is able to roll up the universe like a garment this one that sits at the right hand of God where all his enemies will become a footstool for his feet. In other words, you need to go back to chapter 1 and have a vision of the power and the exaltation and the glory and the supremacy of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over all things to remember who it is that is helping you. If he rules and reigns as it says he does, if he has this authority then how can you not be comforted by the fact that he is going to help you in every circumstance, in every situation, down to your last breath and your final sigh on this, in this world, on this earth, Christ will be there to help you. He will be there. He tasted death for us. He tasted the bitterness of death because he not only died, but he bore the wrath of God. And in doing that, he diffuses death for us. He takes away the sting of death. We should be able to look death right in the face and say, I am not afraid. The only thing that matters is, are you in union with Christ? Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you one with him? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Are you in union with Christ? If you're not, you don't have this assurance. If you're not, the fear of death has not been taken away. It does present the ultimate calamity, the ultimate calamity of all. I just come back to what happened to the people at 9-11 because such a vivid memory, universal memory in the minds of all people that these folks who walked into that building on that morning, sipping on their latte, thinking they're just going to pull up to their desk as always, pull up their chair to the desk, put their coffee table, log into their workstation. They did not know that in a few moments, many of them would be leaping to their death from 150 stories. So it is with the wicked. They don't realize that in a very short while, if God does not have mercy on them, they will not be leaping out of a skyscraper. They will be leaping into a Christless eternity without help. And so we, we who have Christ, we who have put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand he is our rock so that when we leap into eternity, we are going to have our feet firmly planted in his presence. And we need not fear. We need not fear. Let me pray for us that we don't fear. Father, I pray for our courage. I pray for our understanding more than anything because the battle is in the mind. The battle is in the mind. Satan knows that he cannot undercut our foundation. Satan knows that he cannot undo the things that are written in Scripture. But if he can get us not to believe in those things, if he can gobble up our faith, 
if he can confuse and muddle our thinking, then he can take away from us our courage and our comfort. And so, Father, may we not yield, not even for a moment, to him. May we not yield our thinking, and may we not yield our members to be enslaved to him again ever. Give us strength, Lord. Help us understand the victory that has been won for us in Christ. And then let us look to Christ for all of our help, for all of our sustenance. Let us look to him for our rescue. He stands there waiting to help us. Help us to fly to him, to flee to him, to flee to the Savior, to run into him so that we would be safe, safe in his everlasting arms. We pray these things according to your will in Jesus' name. Amen.